Welcome to this episode of the Lessons from the Cockpit podcast. This is episode number 49, and I've been doing this a year now. Isn't that incredible? On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we debrief some of the most incredible pilots, aviators, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. Our purpose is to hear their stories, but more importantly, what did they learn from these extraordinary and extreme military, commercial, and even private aviation experiences? Our discussion gives our listeners a better understanding of how does the aviation world work and improves critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. We also give a lot of our veterans an opportunity to tell their stories and you are hearing some of them on the Lessons from the Cockpit show for the very first time. This episode is sponsored by Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. Go to our website, wallpilot.com, and take a look at some of the ready-to-print graphics that are on vinyl. We also do custom orders. So please go take a look at some of these and order one or two of these really detailed prints for the walls of your home office or hangar. I recently started a TikTok page and I'm just putting up 15 to 17 second videos. In 50 days since I started this, I have 18 million views. So go by at Mark Hesera and take a look at some of the things that I've posted there. On today's show, I want to talk to you about one of my flight instructors flying the great T-38 White Rocket. I wish I knew where this guy was. I would love to talk to him again. But today, I'm going to give you his five commandments of flying that apply not only to being in the air, but also to your personal life. So, grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in, and let's begin the Lessons from the Cockpit show and talk about the doctors. Five commandments of flying. I've told all of you, I wanted to be an Air Force pilot since I was five years old. I was an airplane nerd throughout elementary school, high school, built model planes, read every book on famous aviators I could. My grade suffered because of that, (laughs) but I wanted to fly planes. It's my passion. And those of you who have listened to this podcast long enough know that I'm very passionate about aviation. I went to Brigham Young University, got the catalog in my hands for the classes, and I said, what will get me out of here the fastest? And it happened to be political science, majoring in national security of all things. I thought, cool, I can do one paper and hand it to my ROTC instructor and to my professors. Work smarter, not harder, I've always been told. Well, It came time to compete for an Air Force pilot slot, and timing is everything. I came into the Air Force during the Reagan buildup, and we had 21 ROTC cadets in the year that I got my pilot slot, who also got pilot slots. I was euphoric, knowing that I had a pilot slot, and all I had to do was graduate, and I was going to live my dream. I got my assignment for pilot training to Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma. Now, if there's one thing about Oklahoma and Enid is it's flat. Stand on a tuna can and see Chicago. But one of the other cool things about flying there was the way the farms were all laid out. You had like a perfect grid underneath you, which was great for pilot training. And the other thing was you saw all four seasons, spring, summer, winter, fall. You got to fly in all four seasons. I was excited to go to Enid and Vance Air Force Base and learn how to fly. I showed up at Vance Air Force Base in April of 1984, just excited as heck to be there. Watching T-37 tweets taking off, T-38s taking off on the outside runway, smelling jet fumes, hearing the noise. I was so happy to be starting my dream. And I ran into a brick wall. I struggled through T-37s. I almost didn't make it through T-37s, the primary phase of instruction. Here I'd wanted to be a pilot all this time. I actually went to an 88 ride, which is an evaluation of can this person make it through. Fortunately, I did really, really well on this 88 ride and got to continue. But I got what was called wash back. I went back a class because there was no way for me to catch up with the rest of the class. Had a great instructor when I washed back, Lieutenant Dan. And he was very patient with me and got me through the T-37 phase. Got into T-38s all excited. Your very first ride in T-38s back then was your supersonic ride. 
And I thought, this is going to be great. Didn't hear a thing. Didn't see a thing. Just saw the airspeed indicator at the Mach number. And that was it. It was kind of a letdown. But I was flying in T-38s. And it was incredible. The power that that thing has when it takes off an afterburner and you just go and go and go in that jet. In my flight of instructors, a captain who had come back to Enid, Oklahoma to Vance to be a second assignment instructor. And he was the assistant flight commander. This gentleman's name was Captain Marcus Carlton. And we called him the doctor. He got the nickname the doctor because if there was a student that was having trouble, like I was, he could pretty much tune you up and get you going on the program. He was an incredible instructor. And all of us that went through Vance at that time period that were in my group of students still remember Captain Marcus Carlton. I wish I knew where he was. He went from Vance back to the bombers. And I understand he was in the B2 community for a while, but I lost complete track of him in my Air Force career. And I wish I could find him. If there are some of you out there that know where retired Colonel Marcus Carlton, the doctor is, please, please email me and let me know. Cause I would love to have him on as a guest because he was a real character too. He played hard when it was time to play hard, but he worked hard when it was time to work hard. <laughs> I'll never forget at our assignment night, we all came into the club. And of course, a lot of people were very happy with their assignments. I was kind of happy with mine. I didn't know where Pease Air Force Base was. And Marcus Carlton, the doctor, came up to me with a Coors box on his head with holes in the box so that he could see where he was going, what he was doing. This is the kind of guy he was. And he asked me, he says, well, what do you think about your new assignment? I said, well, I think it's good, you know? He goes, what do you mean you think it's good? And I said, Captain Carlton, I put peas down simply because it was on the East Coast near a beach. They told me I had to have an East Coast base and that's the one I put down. And he told me something, he got really serious. And he looked at me like, you moron. Do you have any idea where you're going? And I go, no, I really don't. Pease Air Force Base. It's on the East Coast near a beach. It's got a tanker squadron and an FB-111 squadron. And he said to me, I would kill or sell one of my kids to go to Pease Air Force Base and be part of the FB-111 program there. And I said, are you serious? He goes, I am dead serious, Sluggo. You're going to a great great assignment. 50 minutes north of Boston, two squadrons of FB-111s, tankers. You're going to love being there. He said, are you a seafood eater? No, I'm not. He goes, you're going to learn because there's lobster up there like you can't believe. You have a great assignment. And he congratulated me on being selected to go to Pease Air Force Base in KC-135. And sure enough, folks, when I got up there, Pease was a fantastic assignment. Every third week, we were on nuclear alert. You could pretty much plan your schedule by that. We had great off-station training events that we could actually put paperwork in, take a KC-135 anywhere in the United States and the Caribbean, and go train for a week, refueling FB-111s or B-52s or fighters or whatever. But we had a lot of business efforts that we would go to Texas, refuel C-141s that were out of Altus. Just, it was a wonderful base, a great place to for a first assignment. And like I said, it was a great seafood place. I'm still not a seafood eater, probably never will be. That's okay, I've gotten over it. I'll never forget flying with him because I always learned something even on rides that I failed. At least I came away with the right tools to fix what was wrong because I was flying with the doctor, as we called him. The one instructor pilot that we all knew could fix any student. And here's what's so great about his teaching technique. You'd go into his office and sit down and debrief the flight. And behind him on the wall was this great big, huge framed piece of paper. And on that framed piece of paper was his five commandments of flying, his five rules of flying. And what he would do is he would sit down with you and he'd say, okay, 
Which one of these did you violate today? And he had this great big long pointer that he would use to point at the ones that you violated that day. And I can still picture sitting in a chair across from him and him saying, okay, which ones did you violate? On the other hand, too, he would say, which one of these did you do really, really good today in? And that's how he would debrief. But you know what? Through my entire Air Force career, I have never forgot those five rules of flying that Captain Marcus Carlton, the doctor, had on his wall framed behind him. And here's what those five rules are. And I'm going to give you some stories of how we use these things and also kind of relate them to and some of the experience I've had in my personal life where these things have applied. At the top of his list, the very first rule was only three words. Fly the jet. And that was the one area most students busted a ride in or failed a ride. You'd get a little pink sheet of paper that would go in your grade book if you busted a ride. Fly the jet. Obviously, this is a very big category because there's a lots of things that you can do where you can violate that rule of not flying the jet. And I'll give you an example. I moved over to T-38s in about the fall, early winter timeframe of 1984. So the weather is not real good on some days. Obviously, it's cold. You know, you're in the plains. But the one thing about the T-38 at this time period is we had old electromechanical instruments. We didn't have the multifunction displays like you see in cockpits now that are incredible situational awareness builders that have all of the airports and all of the boundaries shows the flight path of the airplane has all the information about altitude, airspeed, heading, drift angle, all of that. You had none of that in the T-38 when I was flying in 1984. So... You had to build an incredible picture in your mind of where you were at and be able to maneuver in the training areas based on what that mental picture looked like. And in the T-38 at Vance Air Force Base, our training area was called the tubes. The tubes were defined by compass radials off of the Vance TACAN and DME, distance measuring equipment. So what ended up happening was you had a semicircle at say 40 miles and another one say at 70 miles and each one of the tubes was broken into sections by a particular electronic radial off of the Vortac and you moved through the tubes and you only had a certain amount of time that you could stay inside a certain section of the tubes and then you had to move because there was more students coming in behind you. So you were constantly moving through this tubular area with these walls that were radials and distance from the Vance Vortac. The other boundaries were obviously altitude. So this is how I remember the tubes. The floor, if I remember right, was at 14,000 feet and the ceiling, I think, was at 26,000 feet. The east wall was, if I remember right, at about 40 DME. The west wall was like at 80 or 90 DME. And then there was about 20 to 25 degrees between each radio that started at the top of the tube and then 20 degrees radials farther down was that one section. And then you'd have a complete another section beginning the same way, 20 to 30 radials wide with that 40 to 90 east-west wall and the floor being 14 to 26,000 feet moving about every 10 minutes from each one of the play areas to the next play area to the next play area. And you'd start at the top, move through uh, four or five of these sections, and then you'd come back to the pattern and do pattern work. And then you'd land after about an hour, 
15 minutes, which is like a 1.3 in the T38. But you have to remember, <laughs> you're going 500 miles an hour. You're pulling six Gs in formation. You had to make this mental picture in your mind of what each playpen section looked like without having the electronics that we have now of a flat screen display showing you where all the boundaries are, where all of the floors and ceilings are. So it was very tough to keep up with this going that fast, but I was able to do it most of the time. I mentioned that underneath us was this flat farmland and every one of the roads out there made exactly a mile square. So that was another reference that we could use to figure out where we were at, unless there was weather. And on one particular day, we had weather out there and my brain got stuck. I could not picture where I was because I was having a hard time seeing what was below us, what was around us. And we were told to come back to Vance. And to do that, you had to fly through all the different sections, go to the exit point at the bottom and then fly back. I got lost and I forgot fly the jet. And I had actually busted down through the bottom of the altitude because I wasn't watching what I was doing. And the doctor said from the back seat, where are you going? That's all he said. Where are you going? And I knew right then I had to look at something because I was not in the right place. And I had moved myself into the corner of this one tube section and was below 16,000 feet by about 500 and continuing down farther. So I made the necessary correction into the center of the tube and then got myself all set up to come back in and land. Fortunately, when we were coming back into land, the weather did clear out, but my brain was stuck on, you just busted the ride, you just went through the floor of the tubes, you moron, you just flunked the ride, and it bothered me. I wasn't flying the jet because flying is a lot of mental gymnastics. And my pattern work suffered because of that. Fly the jet. Now, there was one day where fly the jet became very important. And I was flying with somebody else, Captain Joe Drew. I did the first touch and go. Captain Drew took the airplane from me while we were on the runway. We had just lifted off. We're about 10 feet in the air when a fully mature red-tailed hawk went down the right engine. The emergency procedure for this is very simple, and I can still remember it to this day. Throttle throttles max, flap 60%, attain airspeed above single engine takeoff speed, 10 knots desired. And again, remember, I'm doing this in 1984, 1985 timeframe. I can still remember that. That engine took itself apart. We had this massive flame come forward out of the intake when that red-tailed hawk went into the fan blades. And it bent the fan blades all up so that the engine began spinning and taking itself apart. The book says that a compressor stall is a loud bang followed by a buzzing noise. That doesn't even begin to tell you how loud that bang is and how loud that buzzing noise is. But I remember Joe Drew fly the jet and here's what he did. Put both throttles up into afterburner, which pours a whole lot of gas into the good engine and you get airspeed really quick. The problem is this 10 knots desired single engine takeoff speed increase. And the reason that's in the books is because when the gear come down, the inboard gear doors come down and we could feel the airplane slow. And I'll never forget Captain Drew going, go baby, go baby, go baby. And once the inboard gear doors came up and the airplane was clean, it took off like a rocket again. But we had a lot to do in the airplane. And he gave me the airplane to fly while he went through all the checklists because now it's two pilots trying to get the airplane on the ground. You're working to save the airplane. And yes, we read through the ejection checklist in case the other engine conked out because you cannot land a T-38 without at least one engine going. 
the hydraulic power required to drive the flight controls requires at least one engine. You cannot dead stick a T-38. And now you're very concentrated on flying the airplane around the pattern, watching altitude, airspeed, working the checklist, and getting ready to land the airplane on the center runway, which we did. He did the landing from the back seat. We came off the end of the runway, immediately looked out at the fire guys waiting for us. And it's hot. So both of us reached over to our right side of our helmets and flipped down the oxygen mask bayonets. And our oxygen mask fell from our face. That was a big mistake. We both grabbed our oxygen masks and went, <gasps> oh, and we're just breathing really hard. And he was saying from the back seat, man, that's a nasty smell. Man, that's a nasty smell because we burned that hawk up in the right engine, which ran the air conditioning system, which put a sour smell inside the cockpit. And the fire marshal was outside and saw both of us with our hands up to our face. He goes, are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? He says, yeah, we're okay, but man, this stinks. Can we bring the canopies up? He goes, yeah, sure. And he cleared everybody out from underneath the airplane. And we brought the canopies up and then just put our hands up on the on the windscreens and on the canopies so that the fire guys knew we weren't touching anything inside the airplane that would activate like the flaps or the gear doors or anything and bonk them in the head. Fly the jet. What does fly the jet mean in your personal life? Like this emergency, we all go through very hard times. One of the hardest times my family went through, as you heard on a previous episode, was when my son had cancer. Jeffrey made 58 trips to the University of Iowa hospital in two months. But all the other stuff is still going on around you. My kids are going to school, we have to feed them, we have to take care of them, we're still going to church, we had church callings, all these different things. And it made it very difficult to fly the jet because now we are in this intense medical emergency with Jeffrey and osteosarcoma. You can't just ball up in a corner and say, make it go away. And there was a couple times where my wife was pretty mad at me because I wasn't flying the jet. Focus on your priorities. Make sure that the things that need to get done, get done. That you aren't busting through an altitude or going through a wall. And don't let these incredible, intense, mental trials lock up your brain. You still have to function. You still have to keep going. And we had to keep going. Even after Jeffrey died, we still had a lot of stuff to do. Getting him here to Utah and burying him obviously was a big thing. But our kids were going through a very rough time in their lives having lost their brother. We had to continue flying our jet and getting things arranged and taking care of our kids and taking care of the things that mattered most. And that's why fly the jet is so important because if you crash the airplane, running into the ground has a probability of kill of one. You are probably going to die. Set your priorities, set your focus, maintain control of the airplane, maintain control of your thought processes, make your priorities and keep moving forward. You may have to slow the jet down in order to handle all the issues that are going on, but that's okay. Just maintain proper control. Let's move on to rule number two, and that is instruments be your friend. That was the doctor's second rule. Instruments are your friend. I've already mentioned to you, we had these old electromechanical instruments in the airplane, not the great multifunction displays that give you a bird's eye view of where you're at and everything around you. And that's also how we navigated. And I mentioned to you going through the tubes. You had walls that were defined by miles away from the Vance navigation aid and radials. And what you would do is you would dial in the next wall radial into your horizontal situation indicator. 
so that you know as you move through it, you are coming up to a wall. And you looked at the distance measuring equipment and you knew how far east and west you could go. One night while flying in the T-38, one particular instrument became extremely important. And that was a hydraulic pressure gauge. And it's tiny. It's really small in the T-38. And it's one of those that you normally don't look at. You kind of brush by it. You look at all the engine instruments because that's your power. You look at all the navigation and attitude instruments because that tells you if you're right set up, upside down, and where you are in these training tubes. But the hydraulic pressure gauge is a small gauge that, if I remember right, is between your legs down around your knees. And we were flying at night again with the doctor in the back seat. And we both noticed that one hydraulic system was at a red line. I can't remember exactly what the pressure was, but your book knowledge told you in your operating limits that if the hydraulic pressure went over a certain PSI, it would heat up the hydraulic fluid and it would cause problems in the hydraulic flight controls. And that red line had been reached. And that meant that you possibly could lose your flight controls in an airplane capable of going 500 miles an hour. And it says in the books, land as soon as possible. And so sure enough, that pressure gauge stuck there and we could feel the flight controls getting a little mushy, if I remember right. And we're flying this at night. So we had to declare an emergency and come back at night to Vance Air Force Base, which meant we had to do an instrument landing system, ILS, dial in the course that you're going to fly, watch the command bars as it brings you down on the ILS, telling you turn left, turn right, go up, go down, holding power, looking at all the gauges, but still looking at that one hydraulic pressure gauge to make sure that we continue to have pressure in the airplane. Because in the T-38 with no hydraulic pressure, you have to eject, get out of the plane because you'll lose the flight control system. Instruments are your friend. And we had these old, old instruments that we were using back then. Now, current instruments. I used to work at Rockwell Collins and the multifunction displays that we are putting in cockpits now are fabulous. You have an incredible bird's eye view of where you're at. And in some cases on some airplanes, you have what's called enhanced vision systems that allow you to see down through bad weather when you're coming in for landing from seven or eight miles out from an infrared camera that actually projects that picture onto a piece of glass that's at eye level with the pilot, like a heads-up display. You also have a virtual reality map that is overlaid on some of these that show you exactly what the terrain looks like around you. <laughs> I remember seeing coming into Salt Lake on one of these MFDs, and it showed you exactly where I-15 was, where all the buildings were, where all the roads were. It was incredible. But when I went through pilot training, we didn't have that. We've gotten much smarter at giving pilots all the situational awareness that they need by creating wonderful multi-function displays that you see in the airplanes now. But when I went through pilot training, we didn't have that. And you really had to build this mental picture in your mind based on what your instruments, particularly your horizontal situation indicator was telling you. Now, I will tell you the T-38 has gone through a complete avionics upgrade and it now has these kinds of multifunction displays. But when I first learned how to fly, we didn't have those kinds of instruments. When Captain Carlton was saying to me, trust your instruments, what he was trying to tell me was, instruments are your friend. Look down at them, build the mental picture in your mind and be able to navigate through it. It is so much easier now for pilots 
to navigate anywhere in the world in almost any kind of a weather because of how far we've come with the instruments that we have in cockpits. So let me tell you how good the instruments are now. We had a simulator when I was working at Rockwell Collins, which was called a reconfigurable cockpit. They could move stuff around to kind of judge what's the human factors of having this gauge here or this multifunction display here or four multifunction displays across. It had the heads up guidance system that allows you to look out the the windscreen, see where you're going. It had the enhanced vision system on it that would see down through the weather. And it also had the artificial intelligence um, map that would put all the buildings and stuff around you. We used Jackson Hole, Wyoming for our reconfigurable cockpit because you get all kinds of weather up there. It's high in the mountains, so you have pressure altitude problems you got to deal with. And of course, during the wintertime, it's got incredible snowstorms. And I was flying the reconfigurable cockpit simulator into Jackson Hole, Wyoming in the wintertime in a snowstorm. It, the simulator instructor was kind of showing off what the instruments can tell you and, and how good they really are by making it snow outside. When you are flying through snow to a runway and you've got the landing lights on, it looks just like you're making the, the jump to light speed in all the Star Wars movies. It can be very disorienting and it's really bright. To fly an instrument landing system ILS down to the runway, now you have what's called dot in the hole. All you do is you keep this one dot in this hole that is centered on the landing area of the runway and you'll go right to it. I was flying with all the systems up. I had the enhanced vision system. So seven to eight miles away from the runway in this snowstorm, in the heads up guidance system piece of glass in front of me, I could still see the runway and the lights, everything because it gave me this infrared picture looking down through it. I also had all the terrain around me. I had a terrain avoidance system that would tell me if there was terrain around me or I was going too low or I was off course or off glide path. All of these things were telling me if I was making any mistakes and I was able to come down in this airplane, it mimics a 757 airliner, put the airplane right on the runway. And I did it manually. I didn't do it with the autopilot on. I did it flying the airplane manually because I had all of these tools that could tell me where I was course-wise or glide slope-wise or where my airspeed was and what was the terrain around me and showed me the runway out in front of me. It was really incredible. And I flew through most of my Air Force career without these kinds of tools in the cockpit. Trusting your instruments has changed a lot since I was flying with Captain Carlton with those old electromechanical compared to these MFDs we have now. And almost every airplane, even your little small Piper Cub can have one of these things. Garmin makes all kinds of commercial off-the-shelf instruments that you can even put on an iPad for crying out loud now to help you navigate. Just real quick, I also want you to remember the very first podcast I did back a year ago was Aviate, Navigate, and Communicate. All of these rules, these five rules that the doctor has all fit into those Aviate, Navigate, Communicate priorities. So I'll probably mention those as I go through here. But now I can navigate from Rota, Spain, across Iceland, across Greenland, across the Hudson Bay, land at Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane, Washington. And I think our navigation systems were only off by 300 feet. When I first came into the KC-135 with these old electromechanical avionics instruments, it wasn't uncommon for us to land and our inertial navigation system would be off by two to three miles. Instruments have come a very long way. Now the new guidelines with reduced separation, there used to be 4,000 feet between two airplanes going east and west out over the ocean, and now it's only 2,000 feet 
because the instruments have gotten a lot better. You're only within a half mile of your center line and you're only within 100 to 150 feet of your altitude because these new instruments are so good at what they do. Third rule of flying was trim is like breathing. Whenever you make a control input to the airplane, whether it be thrust or lateral rudder, whatever, there is a way to trim that flight control service so it stays in that position. And what that does, it takes a lot of this pressure off of the stick or the yoke in your hands. It is not uncommon for me to be in the pattern flying a KC-135 and I'm running the trim switch constantly. As I'm pulling back the power, I'm making trim inputs. As I put the flaps down, I'm trimming the airplane. I put the gear down, I'm trimming the airplane. I'm leveling off at my cruising altitude. I'm trimming the airplane so that the airplane flies straight. Sometimes that requires some rudder trim. I've actually flown a KC-135 where the yaw damper on the airplane was a little off and the nose would hunt about two degrees right or left. And we could look in the back of the airplane where we had like our suit bags hanging in the back and you could see them swinging back and forth in the back of the airplane. Remember, KC-135 came out in the 1950s and 60s. It, it doesn't have all of these great fly-by-wire flight control systems. It's all cables and pulleys and everything that fly the airplane. And I remember no fooling looking back in the back of the airplane because my boom operator said, hey, look at how bent this airplane is. And our suit bags were swinging back and forth because the airplane's nose was going back and forth. We never wanted to take the series yaw damper off but we could put in just a little bit of trim that would help the airplane fly with a straight nose. But we were constantly trimming the elevator for different flight regimes, whether it be in the pattern or land, even on landing. On landing, I'd put in two to four dits of trim. Boom, 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 with some trim to keep the nose about six to eight degrees above the horizon as the wheels would touch down. We would run the trim to a neutral position during the touch and goes as the airplane was on the runway. But as soon as we lifted off the nose, we'd start trimming again as we made configuration changes in the airplane from flaps 50 to flaps 20 to gear up, all those kinds of things. And all that does is take pressure off of the stick or the yoke. I'll tell you where this was really important. And that was when I was flying with the doctor in formation. Formation was absolutely the funnest block of instruction in the T-38. Because you were doing wingtip formation, like you see the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels at an air show. We were flying close trail. We were flying extended trail. We were flying rejoins, doing all these things, and you were trimming the airplane like crazy. When you are flying in wingtip formation, you're only three feet away, 30 degree offset of the lead aircraft. And when you are pulling and putting G on the airplane, you're trimming. When lead starts rolling and you start rolling with them to maintain that position, you're using elevator trim, and aileron trim to stay in position. You want to keep that stick light in your hand. And so you'd come back from formation missions in the T-38 and your thumb muscles were sore because you were just trimming like crazy. And again, in the pattern, you're doing the same thing. Any configuration change required trimming the airplane. And that's why 
Captain Carlton said, trim is like breathing. When you take a breath, you trim. You take another breath, you trim the airplane. You put the wheels down, trim the airplane. Flaps down, trim the airplane. Thrust reduction, trim the airplane. Thrust increase, trim the airplane. You are constantly trimming the airplane and to keep the pressure off of the stick and the yoke. Every one of us has a lot of pressure on us right now. There's a lot of things going on in the economy, in our personal lives. Just world politics is just going crazy right now. And folks, I want you to remember to trim. Take some time off to go see a movie. You can't stay in this intense environment without going nuts. You have to change your scenery every once in a while. You have to slow down every once in a while. And again, that requires some trim inputs. Sometimes that venting required food, okay? We've all had situations where we had to go out and get some comfort food, and that's trimming the jet. I love french fries, particularly from Five Guys. That's trimming my jet every once in a while to go out and have some Five Guys french fries. But don't stay in this intense environment for very long and trim out all of those stick pressures in your life. If you owe taxes, go pay them off or figure out how to do it. 85% of the decisions that you make should probably be made immediately just to get it out of the way. Trim your aircraft, trim your life, folks. Take all of these intense pressures and kind of move them to the side for a few minutes. That is what trimming is all about in your personal life, in my opinion. Number four. <laughs> this one's kind of funny, but believe me, it has a lot to do both in the airplane and with our personal lives. And rule number four is radio calls do not generate lift. And what the good doctor means by this don't make a radio call when you need to be flying the jet and concentrating on an emergency. Remember I told you the rules. Aviate, navigate, communicate. Communicates last for a reason. Problem is, we are all social animals and we wanna talk. We like to talk. And there were so many times when I was making a radio call when I should have been concentrating on something in the airplane like my altitude or my airspeed, but I chose to talk instead. Radio calls do not generate lift. They do not keep the airplane in the air. They do not keep it moving forward. They do not put lift under the wings. It's a matter of priorities. Aviate and navigate are your first priorities. And the primary rule of aviate is fly the jet. Make sure you're going the right direction, the right altitude, the right airspeed, and dealing with, oh, I've got an engine conking out because I just ate a red-tailed hawk. Get the airplane up away from the ground, clean the airplane up, do all the checklist items, and once you've got all that done, then make the radio call. We had what was called a runway supervisory unit that was next to the landing area of the runway that always had one or two instructor pilots and one or two students. Once you were in the pattern, the runway supervisory unit or the RSU basically was the control tower for the runway. When we sucked that hawk down, of course it made huge flames out the front and out the back and the instructors in the RSU saw it. But guess what? They didn't make any radio calls to us because they knew we were busy. Getting the airplane up away from the ground, off the touch and go, cleaning up the airplane, and doing checklist items. Once we had climbed out, we're going up to pattern altitude, then Captain Drew said, hey, Speedo, we've had a bird strike. We've had to shut down the right engine. This is our plan. We're going to go to outside downwind. We're going to do all the checklist items that we have to do. We're going to come in, do a single engine landing to a full stop. Aviate, navigate, communicate. Telling Speedo that we had just ingested a bird right after we had done it was not a priority, nor was it appropriate. That is why the three words that help any aviator get out of a sticky situation, communication is last. Fly the jet. Back to a place where you can put the wheels on the ground, tell everybody what your plan is. Now, I can relate this to my personal life, and I've talked about this in a previous episode, is God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. We tend to talk too much and listen too little when our priority needs to be the other way around. Listen first, then talk. 
and it's about priorities. Radio calls don't generate lift. A lot of times, talking isn't putting lift under your wings or improving your position for that matter. We have all been at a dinner table where one person has demonstratively captured the conversation around the dinner table. We just recently had Thanksgiving, and I'm sure many of you went through this or experienced this. Somebody talking too much and listening too little. We gain so much more information in our lives if we listen with our two ears first, talk with our one mouth later. Now for the last of the five rules of flying from Captain Marcus Carlton, the doctor. (laughs) And this is a good one too. Number five, rule number five, above all else, sound cool on the radio. And I remember exactly how he explained this. He said, you can be in the T-38 and your wings are ripping off. And I want you to mash that mic button and say, "Uh, yeah, Speedo, uh, my wings are coming off the airplane right now. So I'm going to go ahead and eject and I'll see you guys on the ground when it's all over with. Talk to you soon. And only after you have let go of that mic button are you allowed to scream. (laughs) What the doctor was trying to tell us was talk with confidence. When you mash that mic button, you talk explicitly and with confidence and you don't mix your words. And more importantly, think about what you're going to say first. Kind of like Study it out in your mind before engaging your brain and moving your mouth. One of the great things about the internet is you can go to just about any airport online and listen to arrivals, departures, tower, and the airplanes that are talking to all of those agencies. And very rarely do you hear a voice of no confidence or very little confidence when it comes to radio calls. A lot of this comes from experience. Many of these airline pilots have been flying for tens of thousands of hours, but they all sound confident on the radio. And I remember going through pilot training, particularly in the T-37, fumbling over my words, saying the wrong things, until I got more experience and confidence. I don't believe any of us would follow a leader who is not confident in the way that he or she speaks. And here's some of the things that I've learned from in my life and being in business that I just want to share with you real quick. Number one, think about what you're going to say, particularly if you're going to give some type of speech. Many of us have been to speeches where people up on stage going, mm, uh, and, mm, uh, and, and you can tell that they're not prepared. Think about what you're going to say. Take some time to go over it in your mind before you say it. As I said, engage brain before moving mouth. Second lesson learned, make it short and concise. As all of you know, in the military and in the aviation world, we really do have a language all of our own. And we talk in very short, very concise, using specific words, words very unique to aviation, But that's how we keep the conversation short and concise. I would also add in there, constructive. Make it constructive. Short, concise, and constructive. There is too much negative talk in the world today. Too much negative news, negative emotions, negative feelings. Be constructive when you're talking to other people. I think my last lesson learned from speaking and from being in business is mean what you say. Your words should be filled with honesty and integrity in such a way that when people hear you make a promise, they know that they can trust you. They know that you will do what you say because you mean what you say. This is real important when you're talking in personal communications. I think this is even more important in our personal communications, one-on-one, two-on-one with people in meaning what you say. We often don't want to upset anybody or offend anybody, and oftentimes they need to be told the truth. There have been many times where I've walked into a commander's office with some game plan in my hand and have told him, you're not going to like what I had to say, but you've got to hear it, boss. Here goes. And that's all part of integrity and honesty. Give your commanders and your leaders the right information, but when you tell your boss, here's the what, here's the so what, here's the now what, 
that leader knows that he or she can come to you in any situation because you're going to give them the honest truth, whether they like it or not, whether it's bad or good, doesn't matter. You're not going to candy coat it. Mean what you say when you speak. These three concepts allow you to speak with confidence. And all of the great leaders that I have been around both in command centers during the Shakana campaign to boardrooms at Rockwell Collins, appreciated speaking with confidence and employing those three concepts and elements when you are speaking. Well, folks, Captain Marcus Carlton, the doctors, five rules of flying. And just to recap what they are, rule number one, fly the jet. Rule number two, instruments are your friend. Rule number three, trim is like breathing. Rule number four, radio calls do not generate lift. And rule number five, above all else, sound cool on the radio. It's been 37 years since I was taught these concepts and these rules of flying. I've used them in the airplane, flying the KC-135 all over the world but I've also used many of them in my personal life. And I am so grateful that I had a mentor like Captain Marcus Carlton, the doctor, to teach me these five rules and to mentor me through what was a pretty rocky pilot training experience. But I made it through and I flew KC-135s, loved every minute of it. And I hope that you aviators will take these to heart and not only use them when you're flying your airplane, but also in your personal life. Thanks for downloading and listening to episode 49 of the Lessons from the Cockpit show. I am your host, Mark Hacera. This episode is brought to you and sponsored by Wallpilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. I have 127 ready to print four, six, eight foot images on vinyl that you can peel off and stick to any flat surface. We've even found out folks that you can stick them on your vehicles and your boats. We have one guy that has some of the patches that we've printed on his boat of all things. These are very detailed prints of aircraft from World War II all the way up to 5th Gen fighters. And we're working on helicopters right now. I'm doing a Sea King and an Apache for two uh, customers right now. Please tell all your family and friends to download and listen to 49 episodes of the Lessons from the Cockpit show, which can be found on my website at marcusera.com. On our show next week, I'm going to talk to you about some experiences I had with what we call time-sensitive targets, or TSTs. All of these require a lot of gas, and many of them were in the news on a worldwide basis within five minutes of them happening. So tune in next week to the Lessons from the Cockpit show when we talk about time-sensitive targeting and what it takes to plan these things and how lawyers... (laughs) fit into our kill chain cycle on the Lessons from the Cockpit Show. Thanks again, folks, and we'll talk to you again next week.